0: Why are you friends with your friends? Have you ever thought about that? Well, this morning I'm asking the question. So I'm going to ask you to think about someone in your life whom you consider a friend. Maybe it's someone who's a best friend. Maybe it's someone who's a work friend or a school friend or a childhood friend. Maybe it's your spouse or a sibling. But you got that person in mind? Now I'm going to ask you to take a minute, and really I'm going to give you a minute for this to open up your worship guides, and I I want to challenge you to write down one reason. Maybe you could pick a hundred, but one reason why that person is someone you consider a friend. What is it about them that you value? You got a minute. Ready, set, go. Fifteen more seconds. I heard someone up front whisper, that was easy. Um, maybe it was easy. Maybe it was difficult for you. But is anyone brave enough to share? What what'd you write down? Yes. Okay, someone in your life who is understanding. That's a good value. That's a good trait for a friendship. What else? Understanding. Someone who's always there for you. Understanding. Unconditional. They give you grace. Someone who's honest. Let me hear one more. Supportive. Someone who's supportive, unconditional, forgiving, always there for you. Those are amazing, amazing traits, characteristics, values to have in a friendship. You want to know what I didn't hear and maybe what I'm guessing none of you wrote down? Is that you're friends with somebody because they've stolen something from you. That's typically not a trait that makes for good friendships. And I'm sure none of you wrote down that you're good friends with somebody precisely because you should be enemies with them. That's also not something that normally makes for good friendship. But in our sermon today, we are going to look at a friendship where those two characteristics really are what from the outside define the relationship at the beginning. It's the relationship, the friendship, between David and Saul's son, King Saul's son, Jonathan. And from everything that it looked on the outside, it was true that this shepherd boy, David, took something from Jonathan. Jonathan. He stole from him. They should have been enemies. And yet precisely because they should have been that and yet we're very good friends, what we have here is an episode, a story from David's life inspired by God, written in scripture and given to you that is going to change the way you think about your friendships. We're going to look at two questions today in our sermon, two big questions. The first one is this, What or excuse me who can a person after god's own heart be friends with throughout this series we're looking at david who is a man after god's own heart and we've talked about that someone who is a person after god's own heart has god alone on the throne in their heart that that is who they look to for their only source of good god is their source of comfort god is their source of blessing and we're asking who can you be friends with? And secondly, what kind of friendships can someone who is a man or a woman after God's own heart have? Who can they be friends with and what kind of friendships can you have? But before we get into those big questions, let's get into our story. And we're going to pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 17, where we read this, that as soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, that's Goliath, Abner, the commander of Israel's armies, took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. So it's that fresh. It just happened. David's standing there holding Goliath's head in his hands, and he goes before Saul, and Saul asks him, he says, whose son are you, young man? David said, I'm the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Now watch this. This is the last verse of chapter 17. This is the first verse of chapter 18. After David had just finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. I have always wondered what David said in that conversation with Saul and that conversation with David that made Jonathan immediately look at David and go, this is someone I want to be friends with. This is someone who I love as much as I love myself. I always wondered that until two weeks ago when I got to preach a sermon about the story of David and Goliath. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what David, Jonathan, and Saul talked about immediately after David killed Goliath. But I have to assume, I have to guess, this isn't in the Bible, but you can almost figure that as David's standing there with the head of Goliath in his hands, they might have talked about what just happened. You can picture David standing before Singh. King Saul and explaining to him that while everybody else saw a nine foot nine giant wearing armor that weighed 200 pounds, carrying a spear that was 10 feet long and weighed 30 pounds, while everyone else saw that, David might've told him how he looked past that. And as big as that giant was in front of him, he knew he had a bigger God behind him. You can picture it. David standing there, a teenage boy before King Saul and a mighty warrior, Jonathan, and they're asking him, how'd you do it? How did you kill this giant with just a slingshot? And he tells them, He tells them what only a man after God's own heart can explain, that when God alone is on the throne of your heart, there's no room for fear. And so I didn't compare this giant to my size. I didn't compare this giant to any other man's size, but I compared him to God's size. And that meant I didn't see a giant, but I saw a dwarf. I saw a dwarf and knew that with the Lord, the victory is his. You can picture David telling that amped up after the battle, standing there with Goliath's sword over his shoulder and the head of Goliath in his hands. And Jonathan looks and goes, yeah, this is a dude I want to be friends with. And so he does. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And look at what happens next. Jonathan, the person in Israel who had the most to lose when it came to David ascending to the throne of kingship. Think about it. He is the prince of Israel. Look at what happens next. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Do you understand the significance of what is happening here? Jonathan is the heir to the throne. King Saul was the first king in all of Israel. That meant Jonathan, his son, was the first prince, the next person who is supposed to take over as king. Throughout his life, he had been told that. And now David shows up, says, uh, actually the Lord anointed me to be king over Israel after Saul. And what does Jonathan do? Try to kill him? Hold bitterness or anger against him? No, he gives him his royal robes. He gives him his royal custom-made w- uh, weapons to him. And he says, look, I've been looking forward to this. This is something I thought I was going to do. But you are the Lord's anointed. Throughout this sermon series, we've been looking a lot at David. We've looked a lot at his heart. And how he is the example of what a person after God's own heart looks like and does. Before a minute, step back and just look at Jonathan because here too is a man after God's own heart. Jonathan gladly gives David what the Lord had already given him. He gives him the throne. And what we see is that David, or excuse me, Jonathan was more interested in making a friend request than establishing a lasting kingdom. No anger, no jealousy, but with complete humility, with complete generosity. He gives David what everyone thought was his. Here it is, two people who should have been enemies because one is trying to take what's his, someone's trying to steal what's his. Jonathan says, No, this David is yours. You are the one God has anointed to be king over Israel. But David becoming king was going to be a lot harder than what both David and Jonathan expected. Because King Saul, who loved David and welcomed David into his court, well, he snapped. He tried to kill David, as you know, in chapter 18. But then again in chapter 19, Saul even told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David. And he warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. David has not wronged you. And what he has done has only benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. That's Goliath. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel. And you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? So, Saul listened to Jonathan and took his oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. But I want to encourage you to read this story because what happens in the rest of 1 Samuel 19 and the rest of the book is that King Saul leaves all his kingly duties and focuses on just one thing and that's pursuing David and trying to kill him. And that's where we pick it up at the beginning of chapter 20. Then David fled from Naath at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. He doubled down on his promise to be his friend. He said, may the Lord call David's enemies into account. He's talking about his father. He's saying, listen, I love you. You are my friend and your well-being, your life, was more important to me than my father's, who's, who's clearly doing wrong. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him. Because Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. It's probably the point where I should pause. And if you haven't heard this before, I should should probably address it. Jonathan and David loved each other. Scripture makes it clear that these men had a deep, genuine affection towards one another. But if you didn't know... Let me tell you that it's really sad that a lot of people today will take this story and they will trash it. They will trash it because they'll say, hey, here's two men who love each other. They must be gay. But we could talk about all the reasons and all the details in scripture that show that it's clearly not the case. But that's a sermon for a different day. Instead, let me just get on my soapbox for a second and say this about friendships and expressing friendships. Here's two men who express their friendship legitimately, loving one another. And what happens is when we judge a friendship like that, when a culture judges a friendship like that and says, oh, they they must be gay, what message does that send for people who are heterosexual or homosexual, males or females, about how they express friendships towards one another? David and Jonathan did what few people today do, and that is put all the cards on the table. They said, look, I need you. I love you. I love you like my brother from another mother, and I'm going through something right now called life, and I need you. I need you to reaffirm, to affirm me as your friend. Tell me, you're my friend, you got my back, because I love you and I need your friendship. Far too few people, and I'm going to say it, especially men today are willing to do what David and Jonathan did, to be truly upfront about how they feel about someone else, to be really real about their emotions. And because of that, what happens far too often, and I'm going to say it, especially for men, is that we don't have friends because we aren't willing to connect really real like David and Jonathan were. But David and Jonathan were big enough to tell one another how they felt. And because of that, they had a very special friendship with one another, a very wholesome, God-pleasing friendship with one another. And it was forged together through some of life's toughest trials. Cuz King Saul didn't stop. He didn't stop with David. He actually went right next to his son. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, his son, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? This was because David didn't go to a dinner where Saul had planned to kill him. As long as the son of Jesse lives, Saul said, on this earth, neither you, Jonathan, nor your kingdom will be established. You see, Saul was still thinking that his son, Jonathan, would take the throne. But that's not even where Jonathan's at. Saul said, now send someone to bring David to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done, Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to kill him. To kill his own son. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. You think? This is the last time they met. Jonathan went out. He spoke to David. He said, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. This is how scripture describes their friendship. Two men who really, truly care about each other, who really, truly love each other. But here's the question I wanna ask you, why? Why did Jonathan enter into a friendship with the person who was going to steal the throne from him? Why is it that Jonathan gave up so much of what was owed him to be a true friend to David, why did Jonathan put his life on the line, his relationship with his father on the line, to be a friend to David? Well, here's the answer. David and Jonathan were best friends, and the reason is because they knew their best friend. David and Jonathan were able to be best friends to one another because they knew who their best friend was. They knew who their God was. They knew that they had a Savior in Jesus who established a friendship with them and made them right with God. And out of that friendship they were able to transcend the circumstances of their life and be friends with one another, though they should have been enemies, though it would probably seem to everybody that this shepherd boy David stole something from Jonathan. They were able to be friends with one another. And you think about their friendship, a friendship where it should have been enemies, but resulted in a friendship. It's a lot like our relationship with our best friend. You look at our relationship with God and from the outset, it didn't just seem as though we were enemies. We really and truly were enemies and the reality is it's because we stole something from God. In fact, today we even still steal things from God. We steal his honor. We steal his glory. We steal the praise and the thanks due him. What else is it than stealing honor due to God When you say, yeah, I I love you, God, but I really don't need you in my life this weekend. God, I love you and I honor you, but I'm going to honor some other relationships more. I'm going to honor my friends, my family, my leisure time, my work time more than you. We steal honor from God all the time. What else is it than stealing thanks and praise to God whenever we have the opportunity to go to people and tell them about how God loves them too, yeah, we don't want to seem soft or we don't want to seem silly and so we say nothing. Take God's glory. We take his thanks, we take his praise, we take the glory that is due our God who made us, created us, gifted us and gave us all things in life. Whenever we succeed or do really well at something and we say, nice job, Matt. You know, you really made you, you. What else are you doing than stealing glory? that's due God. We steal from God all the time and it does. It makes us true enemies of God because we sin against him. And yet, here is the greatest friend request. It's our God who came, and Jesus said this in John chapter 15. I read it before, I'm gonna read it again. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You know it. Christ Jesus did it for you, but he didn't do it for you because you were so friendly, because you were so kind, because you were such a darling, and you were just so good to him. He did it to you precisely because you were enemies, and he wanted to call you his friends. I mean, have you ever thought about that? There are so many different terms or names for God that we talk about in Scripture, We call him king of kings and lord of lords. We call him the great I am, the alpha and the omega, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. We call him our prophet, our priest, our king, the one who intercedes for us, the one who speaks God's word to us, the one who rules all things for us. Did you ever step back and just think about it, that that one, that God, he wants to call you his friend? He wants to be your best friend. Jesus said, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. This is the greatest friend request there is. Jesus coming to earth and saying, I want you to be my friend so bad, I am going to die for you. Some of y'all know the song, so don't worry, I'm not going to sing it for you. But the great song, the hymn, What a Friend I Have in Jesus, it goes on. It says, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. That Jesus is your friend. The Jesus who knows you better than you know yourself. And that's not just a saying. He actually knows your every weakness. He knows your every strength. And guess what? This saying, friend, is the king of kings and lord and lords ruling all things for your benefit. This one is your friend who, who really is always there for, the, for you. You do not have to worry that they're going to pick up the phone, text you back or call you back. You don't have to worry if it's too late at night or too early in the morning. He is always there for you, listening to you. And he doesn't just forgive you and extend kindness and grace to you. He actually forgave you and the world sinned. This Jesus is your friend's. He is the great I am. He is the commander of angel armies, and yet he so desires to call you his friends. Think about that. The one who has forgiven all your sins and bears all your sorrows, all your griefs, is Jesus. He's your best friend. He gave you the shirt off his back. And he didn't just give you something tangible like that. He gave you a robe of righteousness. He's the friend who didn't just Pay for your meal. He's the friend who gives you himself in the Lord's Supper a meal that you eat, that you get, that gives you life and strength and forgiveness. He is the friend that always affirms you, always tells you that you are mine and I am yours. He is the friend who is so loyal that throughout his life he showed it to you, proved it to you. On the cross, he said, I'm never going to leave you. And he said it before he ascended into heaven. I'm coming back for you. He is the friend who gives you all good things that he has. He is the friend who sends his angels to watch over you. He is the friend who puts his hand, his nail-pierced hand around you and says, I'm here. I am here to walk with you all the way to heaven. That's your Jesus. That's your best friend. You think about that. You think about that and the way that really changes the the perspective that you have on all your friendships. Now, let's consider this. Who can a person after God's own heart be friends with? Well, let's consider what Jesus said before he called us his friends. He says, I'm giving you this command. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. I probably should have mentioned this before. That's another way we steal from God. The friendship that he's given us, we don't give to others. The friendship that we have from God is something that we keep for ourselves. You think how simple this command is to just love others just like I has loved you. Go, show love, be friend, be friendly towards people. And yet how quick we are to be mean and say cruel things to the very people we promise to be with the rest of our life and love the rest of our life. I'm talking about husbands and wives. You think how quick it is to throw shade at our parents or be discouraging to our kids. You think how fast we make judgments of people who we don't even know. You think how polarized our communities are, our country is, And perhaps even our churches are just because we don't listen and we have different ideas than people. When I'm talking about being polarized, I'm not talking about just having different ideas or or not having the same solution to problems. What I'm talking about is purposely separating yourself from people who are different from you. Not sending your kids to play at someone's house just because you don't agree with their beliefs. Not letting your kids go to a specific school just because it's more racially integrated than you would prefer. Not being friends with someone just because you're a better Christian than them. It's that kind of philosophy on friendship that not only damages our communities, not only damages our own health, but damages our relationship with God. Because he said, if you obey my commands, then you are my friend. Look, it's, it's kind of simplistic to say, but Jesus called himself the friend of sinners, right? And last I checked, everybody on earth is a sinner. And if you think about the friendship, the love, and the joy that you have received from God, how much more ought we to be friends with people in our lives who maybe are a little different than us? Because we have a Savior who is far different than us. He is holy and perfect in every way. And yet he called himself the friend of sinners. Look, who can a person after God's own heart be friends with? Yeah, everybody. We can be friends with everybody because we have one who was friends with the world. He was friends even with the sinful people in the world because he wanted them to be his friends. Some of y'all have heard me say this before. And if you haven't, Write it down because it's really changed the way I think about people who are different. Empathy is not endorsement. We are not saying when we tell you to befriend, be friendly towards other people that you need to endorse or agree with their choices, their beliefs, or their lifestyle. But what God is telling you in his word is that you have received a friendship grounded in unconditional love that you have to give to others. Freely you have received, freely give. Empathy, showing love, genuine love to people is not endorsement. And that's why people, people who are God's people, can be friends with everyone. And it also changes the way you start to look at the kinds of friendships that you have with quite possibly anyone. Look, I'll be the first to admit it it's hard to make friends. I need friends. It was hard to make friends when I was in grade school and middle school and high school. And you know, it's only more difficult to make friends as you grow and you become an adult. If the recent statistics are true, did you know that one out of every five people will admit that they're lonely and that they need friends? That's 15 people in this room that will actually admit that they need friends or want friends. How many more just aren't admitting it? Did you know if the statistics are true, half of the people in this room have tried to make a friend in the last five years and yet haven't made any? If the statistics are true, every other house on your block has a family in size that loves each other and can talk to one another, but that family has nobody else outside of their immediate family to talk to? Our world is missing connections. Our world is missing the type of friendships that Christ empowers us and equips us to have. And I wonder why. Again, this is, this is not in the Bible, but this is, this is one theory. That perhaps the reason why our world is missing these type of friendships and connections is, is because the people who are equipped most to have them, Christians, aren't taking the time to invest in those type of friendships. As Americans, we really value activity, being busy, doing things. We value activity over connectivity. We value doing over being, over simply being in someone's life, being present, spending time to get to know them. To us, we want to be efficient. We want to be efficient with the time and the things we do, and sometimes it's just not efficient to get together and spend time with people. But pause for a second and think about what you wrote down at the very beginning of this sermon. Think about some of the things that you heard. You heard that the people you are friends with are your dear friends because they're always there for you, because they support you, because they forgive you, because You trust them and they trust you. My friends, these are the things that you have received in abundance from your God. You have been given so much. You have been given so much love. You have been given so much so much forgiveness, you have been given so much support, so much peace, so much joy, so much kindness, so much goodness, so much unconditional love in Christ that you are in a position to freely give it away. Give it away recklessly. Give it away where you can risk it all, where you can bet the house and you don't have to worry about being hung out emotionally to dry or being rejected because you have the affirmation of the most high God calling you your friend. So really the only question that remains for us as Christian people who know the kind of friendships that we have and the kind of friendships that we have, this is simple again too, we can have the best kind of friendships. Really the only thing that remains is, are you going to take the time to give the friendship that's been given to you? Some of you know who the two men in the statue are behind me. The one on your right is Jackie Robinson, the gentleman who broke the color barrier, who broke the race barrier in Major League Baseball when he started for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. Some of you know his story about what it was like for Jackie Robinson in those first couple seasons. A lot of people did not like him there opposing fans would hurl just cruel insults at him because of his skin color. Even the opposing team would say things to him when he was up to bat, when he was on base, when he was out in the field. Even his own teammates weren't very supportive of him. The story behind the statue pictured there is of one game in particular where Jackie Robinson at second base committed an error. And The crowd started to boo him. The fans started to heckle him, saying just disgusting, racial, derogatory things. And in the midst of all of that, all-star shortstop Pee Wee Reese walked across the field and put his arm around Jackie Robinson. And the booing and the shouting stopped. And what began with two people who from the outside that the world would have said should have been enemies is they became friends. Jackie Robinson, talking about the incident a lot later in his life, said this. He said, I don't even remember what he said, but it was the gesture of camaraderie and support and encouragement that counted the most. The jeering stopped. And in that moment, a close and lasting friendship between Reese and I began. Two people that should have been enemies, became friends. We should have been enemies with Christ. But he came down and he didn't just walk across the field. He walked from heaven to earth and he put his nail-pierced hand around us and called us his friends. My Christian friends live in that embrace. Go and out of that friendship, I have a friend request for you. But it's not about me. It's not for me. Go make friends with people, even people that from the outside, it looks like they should be enemies with you. And who knows? Maybe that person that seems kind of weird at the beginning might just be your neighbor for eternity in heaven. Amen.